Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Checkfront, the booking platform trusted by over 5,000 tour and activity operators around the world. You can start your own free 21-day trial over at Checkfront.com. Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran Shane Whaley will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Shane Whaley. Hello and welcome to episode 159 of Tourpreneur. This is the podcast where we flatten the learning curve for tour operators and travel professionals around the world. Today, we are joined on the show by Trish Higgins. She is the CEO at Captain Fishes Cruises over at Booth Bay in Maine. So the cruise company has been around since 1936 and Trish came along beginning of 2020 of all times, and bought that business. And today she's going to share with us the importance and the power behind financial statements. Now, don't run away because I know if you're anything like me, I get scared by the F word. I only really do my books when it's tax time. So when I have to, however, I know from speaking to many of you, this is an area we can definitely improve upon. And Trish is going to share why it's a good idea, other than keeping the tax man happy, to keep good books. Trish has bought over 20 small businesses from landscaping to tours over the last six years, and she shares with us some best practices. So if you want to sell your tour business at some point, she shares with us what she was actually looking for. We also talk about what it's like to take over a business that's been around for 80 years. A lot of scared people, a lot of scared staff. Maybe that will be you in the future. Maybe you will buy a business, especially right now with COVID. Who knows what may happen? And you have to take over new staff. How do you put them at ease? How do you go about uh, having a full staff experience? By that, I mean onboarding, recruiting, retraining. Right now, how you go about attracting tour guides. We know that many many outdoor nature, adventure, water-based tours are really struggling to get tour guides, especially during the week. So this one is packed, full, chock full of excellent information on the operational side of running a tour business, on the financial side, and of course, it's tourpreneur. So Trish, drops three value bombs on us that will help us grow our tour business. So without further ado, notice how podcasters always say that. I don't say it in my real life. <laughs> Let's move over. Let's speak with Trish Higgins. 
Welcome to Tourpreneur episode 159 to Trish Higgins. How are you, Trish? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, well, thank you for um, approaching us with your story because when I when I first read your story, I was like, wow, this this is incredible. And normally when we start a conversation on Tourpreneur, we go through your value bombs. We focus the show on the three value bombs that you want to share with other tour operators or tourpreneurs in waiting around the world. And towards the end of the conversation, I, I ask our guests to share a nightmare situation and how we overcame it, because I think there is a lot of lessons in that for us. In your case, I want to bring that forward, if I may. And if you could tell us about your nightmare situation and how you overcame it. So maybe you can share with our listeners, when did you acquire Cap and Fish? Sure. So we acquired it at the very end of February 2020. Wow. That's probably the worst time in the history of <laughs> the travel industry <laughs> to acquire a tour business, right? Yeah, I, it was when we were working to close the deal, COVID was sort of in the news, you know, in China. And, you know, it, it seemed like a very distant thing. And we closed the deal and about a week later, everything shut down. And that was very unfortunate timing. Didn't feel great. Yeah, I mean, I, I sympathize with you. In January of 2020, I was on a cruise ship around the Caribbean. And of course, same thing. It, it was happening over there. It wasn't happening here. And now I shudder when I think that I was in that Petri dish of a cruise. <laughs> exactly. So walk us through those first couple of weeks. I, I want to share a little bit more about why you acquired the business. But talk me through those couple of weeks. You know, you've bought the business, you're excited. Then what happens? Sure. So when you first buy a business, there's a lot of logistical things that need to happen. So the first week, you know, while COVID was starting to become, you know, more in the news, you know, I was mostly focused on, you know, making sure things like payroll came over and those accounts were set up and um, you know, our registrations were up to date and, you know, all of the sort of administrative stuff that comes when you buy a business and sort of is, is very urgent. That is what I was initially focused on. Then our business operates, you know, we're, we're based up in Maine. So I have yet to find a lot of people who want to go on boat tours in January in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. uh, we open in, in mid-May and close in mid-October. And so, uh, you know, the, the purchase was organized to happen in the off-season. And so at first, there was really one very key employee that, you know, I had to sort of introduce myself to um, as the new owner, which was a surprise. And that's always, you know, never like a super fun conversation to have because, um, you know, a lot of times people felt like they were left out of the process of, of, of the sale and a little bit betrayed by a former owner. And, you know, you're this new person and they don't know you and they're always concerned about how things are going to go for them. So in a weird way, in retrospect, the fact that COVID was starting to hit actually gave us a little bit of common ground to relate to, you know, because we were going through this thing together. At the very beginning, we were closed down. So it was more of a, oh, you know, hopefully this will be over in a month uh, <laughs> at the time. And I felt like, every week almost we've had to reevaluate what what the situation is and you know even just recently you know the past couple of weeks with the delta variant you know we've had to reevaluate things again so that was just the very beginning of us having a lot of conversations 
So you are a unique guest for us here at Tourpreneur because you've been involved in acquiring more than 20 small businesses. So for instance, in this case, and if we can put COVID to one side right now, I know it's difficult to do, how would you ordinarily have a conversation with an employee, particularly because Captain Fisher's Cruises has been around since 1936, 80 years, family owned, it's like an institution. You come in as, an, as a new owner. And I know that this has either happened to some of our current listeners or those in the future who go on to acquire another tour business. What was your approach with the existing employees? It's always a bit nerve wracking. And that first meeting with the employees um, after you've bought the business. And I think it's, it's nerve wracking for everybody because the, the people in the business, they don't know you. It's a surprise. And I think very often people sort of assume the worst. They you know, sort of assume new owner equals bad. Also, everybody, I think rightly so, thinks, you know, how is this going to impact me? Is this person going to terminate me? Are they going to change the compensation structure? Are they going to change the, you know, required working hours, the standard, you know, maybe they're just going to come in and they have their own team and not, they're going to get rid of everybody. And I think especially when you hear a lot about, I think, negative acquisition outcomes in the news, on the flip side, from my perspective, you know, my anxiety would come from, I bought this business because it's a good business. And, and the reason it's a good business is because there are confident people who are working here that I would very much like for them to stay because if they leave, things are actually a lot harder for me. And so in that first meeting, like underlying sort of all of the conversation, you know, the, the people you're interacting with have this sort of like, are you going to fire me sort of question at the back of their head and at the back of my head or people that I work with the back of our head is, are you going to quit on me? Cause I just bought the business. And so there's a little bit of awkwardness and experience has helped us kind of understand that no matter what we say in that first meeting, the only way to gain trust is to be around people for a period of time. There's things you can say in that first meeting that, really turn people off. You know, if you come in and are super egotistical and, you know, just rub people the wrong way, that's not good. But there's really nothing positive that you can say, in my opinion, that's going to make people be like, oh yeah, a new owner bought the business and they seem great. So we'll just carry on as usual. It takes time to build relationships with people. And so I now feel a little bit less anxiety about that first meeting, but it still is something that like for every acquisition we've done, I remember that first meeting because it is a very symbolic thing. It's uh, and then you just kind of get through it and show up for the next day to you know get to work. So for our listeners who may at some point be interested in selling their tour business, what advice would you have? So for the other side, so what were some of the you know the best practices you've seen as a buyer that our listeners could learn from? I work with my husband and my brother-in-law, so it's family run business and we buy small businesses from retiring owners and we have purchased businesses in, in a wide range of, of spaces, not just tour operators, but tour operating businesses. We really like the space and uh, something we you know are involved in now and are hopefully will become more involved in over time. And so I sort of give that background to sort of say we've we've looked at a wide range of businesses and a lot of geographies in a lot of a lot of industries. 
And there are certainly some commonalities that we see from a buyer perspective that are, are very important. The first one is that it is very hard for a buyer to evaluate your business if you don't have your financials in order. And for a lot of small business owners, they don't really have to have their financials in order. They have been in the business, living it for a long period of time, and they know in their gut how they're doing. And if the amount of cash that's in the bank account you know, keeps going up, then things are good and there's no real need to spend a lot of time making sure you know, your financials make sense. And that is totally fine. You're right. You're running the business and that's the way it is. And, you know, candidly, a lot of small business operators, you know, run their business to minimize their profits. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're running your own business, that's your prerogative. But if you're looking to sell your business because you're looking to retire or just move on to something else, it's very hard for somebody coming in that hasn't lived the, in the business and doesn't just sort of know that it makes money for them to just take your word for it. Like when we look at a business, we're looking at the profits and then figuring out what we think is a reasonable price based on the profits. If your business, you know, doesn't show profits, you have to have the ability to have your financial statements organized enough to say, well, you know, these are the, you know, sometimes people happen to run personal expenses through their business. So it's, you know, well, you know, my business says zero on my tax return, but, you know, really I'm running these personal expenses through and be able to itemize and prove those things. And so the most successful transactions we've had are when somebody, you know, has understood the importance of having clean financials. And by clean, I just mean typically prepared by a bookkeeper and that they have have that for at least three years before we start talking to them. So it doesn't mean they've been doing that for three years. It just means that they've worked with a bookkeeper so that they can send us three years of financial statements and we can understand, okay, looking at revenue, this is where the revenue is coming from. These are where the costs are. Um, and this is what the profit is. So it doesn't have to be something that's super sophisticated and granular to get kind of into ca accounting language, you know, most small businesses use cash accounting, which is just, you know, when cash comes in, you record it. So an example of that would be if I sold a ticket in February for a trip in July, most small business owners would just book that as revenue in February. Um, even though technically it's actually not revenue, it's um, a deferred liability um, and un unearned revenue. But that is not something I think a small business operator really has to care that much about. They could if they wanted to. It's something that we would do once we own the business. But when I'm talking about clean financials, I'm really just talking about, can I see the buckets of your revenue for the past couple of years, the buckets of your costs, um, and can you answer kind of basic questions about it? And I think that's the most important thing that if you don't have that, you might say, well, my business is worth $5 million. I'm just making up numbers. And I'd say, well, based on your numbers, it's worth $500,000. And we're never going to bridge that gap because you can't prove to me like how much money your business actually makes. So that's the, that's the most important thing. And, and it, it does cost money to hire a bookkeeper. It is these days pretty easy to find a cheap, some often virtual bookkeeper. I've actually never met my bookkeeper in real life. You segged nicely into your first value bomb here, which is get your books in order. And that's 
whether you were wanting to sell your business or just to, to run an efficient business. So on that question then for the virtual bookkeeper, for all our listeners who, who are now nodding their heads, because most operators I speak to don't know their margin levels and most operators are doing deals with resellers and OTAs without fully understanding the margins. So I think this is really critical advice for all of us. So in terms of getting a virtual bookkeeper, uh, where did you find yours? Was it a website? Was it a an agency? Or Ours is somebody who's actually in Southern Maine. I just Googled sort of remote. At first, it was sort of part-time CFO, remote bookkeeping. And I talk, there are some larger firms that will do this for small businesses. But I just happened to find this smaller firm that does all virtual work that, you know, they happen to be about an hour and a half away from me, but they could, they could be anywhere. And I I did meet with the owner. She kind of talked to me about, you know, what systems to use, how to get things, you know, all set up. And then a person on her staff, you know, I work with, I, I probably email her once or twice a week and, you know, she sends me questions as she has them and she prepares the financial statements for me to look at and we'll flag things like, I don't, you know, there's a, usually a line that says, ask the client, which is like, I don't know where these expenses go. And, you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing evolving thing. It's not like, oh, we just set it once and it goes like, we're always kind of looking at it. But to your point, you know, the basics is just sort of, you know, if you want to sell your business, being able to have them to show your profitability, I'd say like the real power of financial statements is it is being able to use them as a tool to manage your business, not just as something that's a throwaway document. So if you're taking full advantage of everything, you know, accounting has to offer, you can understand your profit by trip type. And you can understand then if you're giving discounts, you know, how is that impacting your margin? Or you can say, hey, you know, we're running a ton of this type of trip, but it actually is a lower profit than our other trip because, you know, maybe it's a longer trip and you burn more fuel and you have to pay more labor hours. And you can say, hey, you know, it's actually more profitable for me to run these other trips that are shorter. And so either I need to shorten my trip length a little bit for the, you know, the unprofitable one or consider increasing the costs on those ones to bring the profit up. And so I think that if you're using the financial statements, I think the way they're supposed to be used, you can use it to make decisions based on like what the levers are in your business. So smart. Yeah. It takes a little bit of work to get there, but starting with a bookkeeper and then just basically spending time looking at them and asking questions about, well, if this went up, what would happen to that is how you get the most familiar with, with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I really do feel that this knowledge is lacking in our sector. I'm talking more about the smaller tour operators. And I think most of us only, and I'm hugely generalizing here. And if you disagree with me, feel free to email me, come on the show, you know, comment in our Facebook group. This is a a two-way conversation. But for me, for instance, when I'm doing my books, it's mainly for my taxes. Because I'm terrified of the IRS and I never want to get that, you know. We all are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not like what you're talking about is, okay, using the financial statements to plan your business and grow your business. And we'll get into that a little bit more. And I would love to see someone, and maybe it exists out there in the industry, someone that could actually give us almost like a mini MBA on the financial side of, okay, you're running a tour business. 
this is the, the financial systems you need to set up. This is where you can go learn and do it yourself, or this is where you can go and get a bookkeeper, et cetera. And I'd love to see that course available for operators because I think it's something most of us really struggle with. Having had exposure to many industries, it is not just this space. Most small business, owner-operated businesses, very, very common. Um, it would be very rare to have somebody who was you know, really digging into the financial statements if you get the right system set up, it is actually can be quite, quite easy. Um, but you have to have the right system set up. If you're trying to do everything yourself or you're trying to do everything with paper or you know, like all these things, it's, it can be quite cumbersome. I think you need to write a book for tourpreneurs, Trish. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how it's done. <laughs> well, are, there, are there actually any books or tools or apps that you recommend for tourpreneurs who want to get better with finances? I don't remember the name, but it's accounting basically taught from the perspective of running a lemonade stand. It might just be like how to run a lemonade stand or something. You can get it on Amazon. Um, but it introduces you to pretty much every financial concept you need to know to run a tour operator business. And it does so, I think, in a way that is easy to understand and relatable to what you're doing here. So yeah. we actually have that book in our office and give it to a lot of people who are starting just so they, they get a sense of what they're looking at. And so I'd say that for reading in terms of systems, QuickBooks Online or Zero with an X, X-E-R-O, those I think are the two leading you know, cloud platforms. We use something called, it used to be called Receipt Bank and they just merged with something. So I think they're called Dext. And that's a really easy way to manage all of your bills that need to be paid and your receipts and stuff like that. And then we don't have a high volume of bills to pay, but if we did have a high volume of bills to pay, we'd also use something called bill.com, which streamlines a lot of your bills and makes it really easy. So those are the kind of like the three big systems that I would recommend. Brilliant. And if you could maybe email me after the show, the name of the book, I'll make sure we add it to our show notes, which everyone can find at tourpreneur.com forward slash one five nine did you know every weekday shane curates the most interesting news articles in tours and activities and sends them out in a snappy daily digest grab your copy of the tourpreneur daily briefing at www.tourpreneur.com i want to move on to your second value bomb you share with us that we should focus on the full employee experience how do you mean exactly and I would caveat this where I still have a lot of work to do in this realm. And I'm not exactly, you know, the leading expert in this. It's not like I have perfect employee experience. What I have come to believe is that in a lot of small businesses, especially tour businesses, especially when you're seasonal, often people who are not with you year round, they may come back year to year. They may not. They may be, you know, for us, we get a lot of college kids who work for us. You know, it could be their first job. It's a, it's a very unique workforce, paid hourly. And I think it's very common for people just to show up for us as boats. You get thrown on a boat, kind of like figure it out. I think that to set people up for success, you need to do a couple of things. And what we've done is, is spent quite a lot of time in developing and onboarding. So on the first day, you know, people come in and said, listen, like, these are what our values are. These are what our expectations are. This is what we do from a employee policy perspective. So, you know, this is what the uniform is. 
This is who you ask if you have a problem. This is, you know, how you get paid. Pretty basic stuff. Even, you know, things that I think shouldn't need to be said, but, you know, we have a zero tolerance policy for sexual harassment. You know, if you show up drunk, you're going to be fired. If you show up late two times, you know, like you're eligible to be terminated, things like that. And so, you know, one, we have an employee handbook that we spent quite a lot of time on that outlines all of these things. We share that with our employees. We have them sign it. And then we have a presentation on their first day that takes the key critical points of the handbook. And we go through and say, this is what it's expected of you. And I think that just helps make people understand like what our standards are. Um, And it also gives us a connection with the employee before you kind of get into the craziness of the day-to-day, you know, did you do this? Did you not? It's sort of you're establishing a relationship based on what our norms are. Do you spend many nights sitting at your desk trying to figure something out in your booking system to make it work better for your business? With Checkfront, you'll always have access to a friendly support team who's quick to reply with a step-by-step solution no matter what you need help with. Find out other ways Checkfront can make things easier for you at checkfront.com forward slash tourpreneur. I've managed hundreds of salespeople and the one lesson that I have learned in the last 20 years is your norms are not their norms. And what we think is acceptable behavior is not always how someone else views it. So I love hearing that from day one. It's like, okay, here's the handbook. Here's our values. This is how we work. Here's our expectations. You're making that abundantly clear from week one that you won't tolerate people, you know, not being punctual or even saying, hey, it's not a case of being strict. If you're not here and we've got the the boats ready to go out, you're going to hold up 20 people. Do you have any idea how that affects us with revenues, uh, with reviews, et cetera? You know, all of that, just setting that expectation is so important because our norms are not their norms. Yeah. And it's, it is incredible what you think you don't need to tell people that you really do. (laughs) And, And it's not to say, you know, you do this, you know, put together this handbook and you do an onboarding session that for us usually lasts about an hour and then everything's perfect, right? Like, Obviously not, but it does help at least establish like the common language you're using. And I think it it helps set the tone for the season. And so, you know, there is some conversation on, okay, well, you know, you're paying people to come in and, you know, you're paying for them for the time. And, you know, is that, is it worth it? And, you know, I would argue that, that it is. That's one thing we do. And, you know, for all of our business, you know, that's, that's something that's a non-negotiable uh, for me. We have developed a bit more of a, a on-the-job training program. There was nothing previously like formal in the business. It was all kind of done. They certainly did training, but it wasn't as structured. So we have implemented, I call kind of like version one of our training program, which I think is well-received. I think you can always do more training at the get-go. We have a little bit of a tricky problem where you know, our season starts slow. So not everybody is necessarily there all at the beginning of the season. And, you know, we'll have some people leave midsummer to go back to school and other people start who are staying through the fall. And so finding time to train those people who aren't there at the very beginning is honestly something that 
we still try to do, but it's not quite as good as it could be. And I have yet to kind of figure out how to do that. Cause once you're in the season for us, everyone's sprinting and finding the time can be, can be difficult. We try our best. The other things we do are we do a mid-year survey to give people an opportunity to share how things are going. And I'd say some of the feedback is productive. Some of it's not, not every it's anonymous and it just has some basic questions. How do you respond to that? Trish, so if you get some negative feedback from an employee, it hurts, right? There's even <laughs> yeah. with the thickest skin in the world, you read negative feedback about management or the way the business is run. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I cry for a while first. Uh, um, no, so, wow, you're human. You know, it, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it sucks. I mean, when you get bad feedback, it, for me, I always feel like I've been punched in the gut or like I feel ill, you know? And I think the first thing you have to do is say, is this one person who, you know, has this issue or is there a pattern of negative feedback? You know, because what you don't want to do, because I've made this mistake, you do a survey, you get the feedback, and then you reactionary freak out mode, be like, well, this one person said this. And so like now, like everything has to change. You kind of like go on a rampage. And just tactically, what I do is I, first of all, never read survey results before you go to bed at night. Just like, that's <laughs> a bad idea. I read them in the morning and then I do nothing and I wait a full day and then I read them again. And then I try to like parse them out into like what's productive here, what's not. And then I'll sort of summarize them, not by person, but by sort of question put similar things together. And then I'll share that with my team and we'll talk about it. And what I have started doing is I have my own opinions, but I like to share it with my, my senior team and say, before I tell you what my thoughts are on this, like you look at it and you tell me what your thoughts are so that I don't bias them with like, Hey, I don't think this is that big of a deal, or I think it's a huge deal or whatever. Cause they're going to take their cues from me. Right. Then. Uh, and then we kind of just talk about, you know, Hey, there's, you know, some of the things are, I'm confused about what this policy is. And I don't like, I don't know that, you know, those are kind of the easy ones of like, you know, somebody doesn't know how to do this and they're raising it. Let's, let's address that. Some of the other ones that you can get are just, you know, if somebody has a problem with somebody else, it's like an interpersonal problem. Those are always the, the trickiest ones, but I think it's important to do so that people feel like they're, they're being heard you know, the ones that are addressable, we try to try to follow up with. And then we we do an end of se- season survey too. And not surprisingly, the end of season surveys tend to be more candid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because sometimes if somebody knows they're never going to come back. They'll, you know, tell you what they really think. And, and that's fine. Um, I feel like my perspective is I'd rather know the bad stuff so that we can try to fix it as opposed to pretend that something you know isn't there. Yeah. And then the final thing just on the employee experience, we do a couple of, you know, we do a beginning of season barbecue, mid-season we had everyone come. We did like a trivia night on the boat and had a nice dinner and kind of that sort of thing. We'll do an end of season barbecue. I'm a little wary of doing too much employee stuff because like I myself in my personal time would rather be home with my family. Yes. So I try not to force, you know, a lot of non-work social activities on people. But I do think that those things have a way of, you know, bringing people together. And I thought the trivia night was really a good idea this year because 
we force people who don't necessarily work together to be on the same teams. We also invited spouses and partners to come. So you get to kind of meet everyone, dogs too. Um, and so we got an opportunity for people who don't normally interact, like somebody who might be in a ticket booth, for instance, interacting with somebody, you know, you know, being on the same team as a, a captain and a crew member or something like that forcing the interaction between the team. I think it was very good for, for morale and a, a pretty easy thing to do. And then the final employee thing is that we do have an anonymous hotline that we've set up. Wow. Um, and I can send you the link for it. And I think that one's really important in case there is anything weird going on that you want to know about. It's completely confidential, completely anonymous. We put the signs up for what the link is in our ticket booth where people check in and you know clock in and clock out. We have it in the handbook. We try to make it available. Um, and we encourage people if they're having, you know, if they notice, you know, somebody said something inappropriate to them or things like that, that people are often hesitant to bring up. We said, we want to know. The only way we can know is if you share it. People typically don't want to share their name. Has anybody ever used the hotline? We've had a couple people use oh, wow. it. Yeah. And it's things like, I think so-and-so, you know, maybe coming to work, having had a couple drinks. You know, we had one, you know, so-and-so behaved in a way around me where I feel uncomfortable. It was a female employee and it wasn't like anything overt, but it was sort of a, yeah. I don't really, I, I just feel uncomfortable around this person because of a couple of things that have happened and little things at the margin. It's really great for us to know about them so that if it's a big issue, we can look into it and potentially take action. But then if it's something where it's, you know, maybe we're not going to put those people together on the same boat or something like that. And I think it's just good to know that for me, I'm like, I'm doing everything I can to be available. Yeah. And if somebody chooses not to share something with us, then fine. But they can't say they, they didn't have an avenue to share. Absolutely. How do you go about retaining staff? Because what I'm hearing right now, especially with outdoor adventure, nature-based tours, A, it's really difficult to, to get guides in the first place because many guides, what I'm hearing, for instance, is we can get them on the weekend, but during the week they're, they're doing other jobs and it's stable money, so they don't want to risk tourism. And then how do you just go about retaining? I imagine where you are is quite competitive with different water-based tours. How do you retain the staff? Other than excellent barbecues and trivia nights and bring the dog. So, I mean, we don't retain all of our staff. You know, we certainly do have turnover year to year. We try to pay well. So we probably pay this year's weird, you know, because yeah, yeah. like, you don't have to go into specific are, things numbers. Things are crazy, but yeah, yeah. we pay, we pay more than the average yeah. in the area. In non-COVID years, we, you know, try to provide a lot of hours. We are out on boats and there is a subsect of people who love being out on boats. So that helps us that it's sort of a fun job in that way. We also have uh, the main maritime Academy has a lot of, of students who will work with us for the summer um, and they will get college credit for it because they do a project on our boat and they also get sea time. So that is huge for us because it provides us with a stable sort of group of people who they're not going to be there for five years, clearly, but they might come back for two summers and they might mention it to a friend who's there who might come. And so that is a very important pipeline for us. You know, the nice thing about the business being around for a long time is there are, you know, locals who know the business and, you know, maybe worked there, you know, 10 years ago and, you know, want to pick up like three or four days this week, you know, this year. And so we kind of have a, a host of those people. 
And in the past, the company has used the J-1 program. What's J-1? Uh, it's a student visa right, program. Right, got you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so student visa program, we provide housing for them. We've had you know people from all over the world, but Fantastic. typically most are Eastern, Eastern European countries and they're students who have to apply to be in the program. So they tend to be quite motivated and they come and they want to work. It's great. Well, what tips do you have for interviewing? Because I know this is something I hear from, from most of our guests and listeners that we struggle with the interviewing process. So let's narrow it down. Let's say it's to tour guides, for instance, rather than captains, because I know it's very specialist. What are some of your tips? What are some of your like secret tactics when you're interviewing someone to work out if, for instance, they will be compatible with the values that you've set for the business? Personally, I think I suck at interviewing, so okay. I'm not sure I'd take my advice, but I actually really like to ask people what their goals are because we want people who want to be there, who are self-starters, who are you know, not just here because they need a job and a paycheck, but I have found that people who have goals, not necessarily professional goals, but personal goals, like you want to retire when you're 40, or you'd like to run a marathon, or, you know, you want to bake a amazing souffle. I don't like whatever it is. It's really interesting to me how people answer that question because some people don't have any goals. Yeah. Is that a red flag for you? It is. Right. It is. Because our season is short. It's a sprint. You need to be a self-starter. You need to be somebody who wants to do a good job at what you're doing. And to me, if you don't have any goals in life, like you're probably not going to have the attitude to, to make it. So that's something I really like to ask people. You know, for us, it's hard because like it's college kids, you know, like they don't have a breadth of stuff to go off of. But just trying to get a sense of culturally, whether they'd fit in, you know, are they somebody who's going to be really high maintenance and, you know, always have an issue with the schedule and not want to do the dirtier parts of the job and, you know, just think they're not really going to fit in. You know, this is a, it's a job where you're out in the water. Sometimes you're out when it's cold and it's, you know, sea conditions aren't great. And, you know, maybe people are getting seasick and you like, there are days like that. And, uh, you know, we need people who aren't going to say like, oh, well, it's cold, so I don't want to go out in the yeah. boat. Um, yeah, yeah <laughs> so Just a little bit of heart- hardiness, I think, is is important. I mean, and I would like to think that anyone applying to work with you would be aware of that. But as we just said a few moments ago, our norms are not their norms. So do you ever get or ask one of your other tour guys to say, hey, you know, sit down with John, sit down with Jane. They're interested in working with us. You give them the lowdown on your day-to-day, the highs and the lows, don't sugarcoat anything, and allow them to have a discussion. And also for that experience to a guy to then evaluate that person and come back to you and say, actually, I, I don't think they cut out for it. Nothing that explicit, but we have multiple people from our team interview. You know, there's never just one person interviewing somebody or one person looking at resumes or something. There's, there's usually a couple people. But we do have some separation. So, you know, sort of have a a head captain and, you know, he is primarily the one who is managing the captains and the crew. So from my perspective, I'm like, you know, whether I like the person or not doesn't really matter because I'm not managing them. I'm not the one who like has to work with them. Right. So I, I have tried to give the authority to say like, you're going to live and die by these people. Right. And like, if one of these people doesn't work out, it's actually like a bigger problem for you than it is for me. 
because you're going to be a guy short, you're gonna have to work an extra day, you know, all these things. So I try to make sure that multiple people are involved in the hiring process and uh, take, that they're taking ownership uh, for it. Great. Your third value bomb is understand the relationship between cost and value. Can you help us understand what you mean by that? I think a lot of small business owners, owner operators, they like to do things themselves because they trust themselves, but also because they don't want to spend the money on you know, someone else doing it. So an example would be, you know, could you hire somebody for not that much to help you on a day-to-day basis just to run errands? So like a lot of small business owners, you know, they might be the ones who are, you know, running around picking up parts or supplies or things like that. And I think my brother-in-law, I think has really hammered home a really important concept, which is ROTI, return on time invested. And if you're the person running the business, presumably you could spend your time doing higher value add things than, you know, running to the grocery store to pick up some hot dogs because they're out. And so a lot of small businesses have a hard time letting go a little bit. And I think there are areas in most smaller businesses that the owners would actually benefit a lot, not necessarily financially, but emotionally from allowing other people to do that work for them. The second component of value versus cost, as an example, would be, well, first of all, there's like a thousand examples of value versus cost when you're operating boats, because you don't want to buy a cheap part and, you know, have it break because then that results in more downtime. So, you know, anything to do with maintenance for us is always about value. So something could cost twice as much as something else, but if it's going to, you know, come from a reputable manufacturer, be more reliable, then that's worth it every day. You know, even in COVID times, you know, you don't want to save, you know, what is it? Penny wise, pound foolish. Especially with a boat at sea. I mean, you know, walking tour maybe. Yeah, if our boats aren't operating, you know, we're, you can't do anything. So we're not making any revenue. So to be, you know, stingy on a thousand dollar part when you might lose $10,000 if you can't operate is like foolish. The big thing for us has actually been in marketing. So this year we hired a marketing firm. Um, They're on retainer. We spent money, social media. And that's something that, is scary to do because we're paying them a monthly retainer, whether we get results or not. We're spending money on ad spend, which, you know, can feel like it's just going out into the ether, you know, and it's a significant cost for us. And we had to say, you know, there's a chance that this actually generates a lot more revenue for us than the cost. So if we're only looking at the cost line item for marketing, you know, it's gone up from we bought brochures in the past and we're in a couple of local sort of ads, but to go from that to a full-fledged marketing campaign is a significant investment. And I think a lot of small business owners would just probably look at the retainer portion of it and say like, I'm just not like, no, I'm just not going to do it. But for us, you know, we've done it with great success and we've made many multiples more in revenue, you know, we've covered the cost of the ad spend and our retainer many, many times over. And if we hadn't taken the 
sort of the chance to like invest in the business and invest in this area that previously the company didn't have any um, exposure to um, because we were being so concerned of the cost, you know, we wouldn't have gotten to see, you know, the, the value that could be created by going down that route. So that's sort of another example of sometimes paying for things can actually, you know, generate more revenue for you, but you have to, you have to kind of hold your breath while you're, while you're getting into it. It's hard. I mean, we're talking about it here. You've put it into practice, but you know, when you see those bills every month that you have to pay, you know how much hard work has gone into that. And it's interesting you've brought up marketing because one of the things I want to do on future episodes of the show is I want to dig a little bit more into the decisions behind uh, appraising marketing agencies. Because as you know, there's, well, hundreds of them out there. Some are great, some are not so great. And it can be a money pit. So I want to produce episodes where we talk with marketing agencies. We bring some operators together and we have the agency on, on the show. And we, we talk through some of the things that are important for, for tour printers because it, it's a tricky decision to make and it can be quite costly, but it could also be the game changer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we got lucky. Ours was not a big agency, small group of guys, and they do most mostly fishing tour excursion right um social media and stuff like that but they had some understanding of your industry of your vertical yeah and i think that was very important we certainly could have gone with a fancier firm or someone who's a bit more flashy but the fact that they understood that we're a you know small operator kind of like you know in the tourism space they understood seasonality yeah you know that there are there's a ebb and flow to our season and when you want to spend money and when you don't like for us, there's not a lot of points spending a lot of money in social media in October because like the season's over, but you know, I had to be educated in my head. I was like, okay, well, we'll start spending money in May because that's when our season starts. And they're like, well, no, you need to start spending money in April because first of all, when you have a new ad, a lot of the algorithms take at least a week to get up to speed on what you're trying to do. And then it takes another couple of weeks to fine tune it to make sure that you're reaching the right people. And so they're like, if you're starting in on May 15th, you really need to start your campaign for the month on April 15th, because like, otherwise you're late, really, you should probably start at April 1st so that when the season starts, you're ready to go. That's something I had no idea about, you know, and I was, when they first said it, I was very skeptical that we need to start in April. I was like, you're just trying to get me to spend money. I don't want to do, you know, but I took their advice and it It has worked out very well for us. And I think it's partly because they understood the type of business that we're in. I think that's very important. And again, you're proving your point about value versus cost, because you could have gone on a course, a Facebook ads course or digital marketing course, you could have spent thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours learning all that. Whereas you've gone out, you've hired someone and you can spend that time then with your employees or growing the business in other areas. And I do recognize for a lot of operators out there, we haven't seen revenue for 12 months. I'm thinking of especially the big cities, you know, New York City, DC, they've been really struggling. Outdoors, adventure, nature has been doing reasonably well. In some areas, I'm hearing breaking records, which you know, blows my mind when you consider what we're going through. So I do want to respect that. But the minute you know, when you do start making revenue, it's like, okay. And, and a good example is here with this podcast. I used to edit every single episode myself. That would take me four hours because I was learning it. And 
also what you were saying at the start, I was a bit of a control freak. I felt like, well, no, I've held the conversation. I've conducted the interview. I know best where to edit it. But my editor does a fantastic job. That saves me four or five hours a week when I can prep, you know, for our interview or I can do guest outreach, wherever it may be, go on a tour even, hopefully. Um, so, (laughs) So I'm definitely in your camp there. In terms of marketing, how are you working with resellers and OTAs? Is that part of your marketing mix? A little bit. In the past, there was like a lot of bus tours that would come through. Obviously, in 2020, there were zero. And this year, it's been hit or miss from like a group tour perspective. You know, candidly, most things for the fall have started to be canceled at this point, which is a bummer. And I really feel for the people that we work with. So that part has been slow to say the least. We do have some relationships with like resellers and stuff like that. It's been something we've been testing out, but last year, because we didn't know if we would open and then we had pretty big capacity limits set on us, you know, we basically said, you know, I'm going to take all the revenue I can get and not want to split any of it with elsewhere. Cause we thought we could fill the capacity ourselves And so this year we've started doing a little bit more of it. I suspect it'll be something we'll look more into it in the off season, but I would say we're novices in in, in that area. You know, 80% of our ticket sales are just direct um, on the website. Fantastic. No, that's something you should be proud of as well. And most of us would kill for that. I bought it. I didn't make it. (laughs) Uh, True. Well, that was a savvy decision on your part. I'm sure that that was uh, one of the reasons why you acquired it. On that note as well, I, I saw that you are working for your online bookings with Fair Harbor. Was that something you brought in or was it something that existed already? No. The previous owner installed it at the end of the 2019 season. So it was new to the business, but he made the decision and said he was switching over. And it, you know, it's been a really good, well, I don't know anything else. So Oh, crikey. You got to get sales calls now when people listening yeah, to this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, it has it has been a very good experience for us so far. That's really good to hear. I know you mentioned earlier on you have a family, you run several businesses. How do you go about achieving any kind of work-life balance, Trish? Well, my husband and I call it work-life blending. Um, nice. And I actually think I have a great balance in that... I get to work with family, which for some people is a terrible proposition. For us, it's awesome and we love it. And so we get to build something together, which is just a super fun adventure. And we get to support each other when things are are difficult. That's a really sort of special experience as well. I benefit greatly at Captain Fish specifically from having a wonderful team who are very competent, which is sort of a baseline, but who want ownership of their responsibilities. Because if they didn't want ownership of of their responsibilities, then I would have to do a lot more things than I do now. But I sort of believe that if you have competent people and they want the ball, then it's my responsibility as the decision maker to, to give it to them and see what they can do. So that philosophy helps make it so that I'm not, you know, feeling like I'm the only person who can do things. Trish, thanks a million for coming on the show today and and sharing your three value bombs with us. I know there are many 
entrepreneurs out there listening that will be inspired by what you've said today, especially about keeping our or getting even our books in order. I think a lot of us are going to be tackling that one as a result of hearing you on the show today. And Maine is still on my list. I uh, live in Vermont and I still haven't made it across to Maine and you're definitely on my list to to come visit. So hopefully uh, it'll probably be next year now because this year is flying by. Uh, I'll definitely come and uh, get on one of your boat tours. I'll be excited to come Absolutely. see some whales. Yeah, sounds great. We'd love to love to have you anytime. And I'd also say that if anybody is you know interested in any of the stuff that I talked about, if they're thinking about preparing to sell their business to, or you know, even if it's selling to a family member or anything like that, my email is trish at captainfish.com and uh, always happy to chat. That's so generous of you. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Trish. Of course. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.